champion as uh, I think all three of us are still recovering from the breathtaking finale of the 2022 World Cup. My name is Nathan Strauss and we are joined by a man who I believe is now setting a new record for the furthest distance away from the other two members to be part of this podcast, Nick Govindan. Nick, where exactly are you joining us from today? I am calling in from Budapest today. So yes, I actually have been traveling a little bit, hence why my appearances on the podcast recently have been a bit sparse, but it feels good to be back. It feels good to be back to be talking about this epic game that I'm sure we'll get to. But yeah, today I'm calling in from Budapest. Uh, I've been in Scotland and Slovakia recently. It's been a real grand time. But I am excited to, yeah, certainly a far distance to be calling in for a podcast. Also, it's <laughs> quite late here in, um, in central Budapest, but it feels good to be back on the pod. Have you picked up a, uh, what, what are the, what's the team in Budapest? Um, I'm Hanved, actually going to visit. Honved and there's Frank Varos. Yeah, I'm actually going to visit Frank Varos on Friday morning. And so I'll, I'll you know, give an update about that maybe next week. Ferenc Varos, who I feel like lose to either Barcelona or Bayern in like every single Champions League, like in the group stage every year. Yeah, uh, they're currently in the Europa League, it looks like, so they might have a chance to uh, lose to Barcelona again. Nick, nice. you're so far away, and yet your audio quality has simply not been better. Um, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> actually, Nick, your Wi-Fi is actually significantly better in Budapest than it is in the United States. Um, so, yeah, maybe we should just, like, not exile you, but, like, maybe you need to pull a Julian Assange and just, like, stay there for the good of the pod. Um, but without the, the without stealing the, yeah, and disseminating the stealing, of state yeah. secrets. But. No, obviously. I mean, I only meant in terms of, you know, uh, you know what I meant. But, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to sell, you know, corner kick trade secrets to uh, <laughs> to the Hungary, to Viktor Orban, the Hungarian regime. <laughs> we can't even afford Zencaster Premium, and you're out here like brokering deals between, um, you know, the the great pillars of Eastern Europe. But yeah, and of course we're also joined. Plus, also, didn't we get that thing about how our podcast is like very well received in Hungary? So yes. I think this is. Oh yeah. Um, so that actually, so this is this is a great segue for no particular reason. But I got an email. Um, like maybe a month and a half ago, and I'm the one who gets all of the emails about like our 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 production and our stuff just because we use my email account. And normally, like I send those messages straight to spam because it's a lot of like company X, like off brand Manscaped will pay you like 16 cents per listen if you like give you give them your naming rights. So I didn't. I normally don't open them, but this time it was like an update on Corner Kick around the world, and we are like. The- <laughs> We're like the, the the ninth most popular soccer podcast in Eastern Hungary, which is so, insane. It's, it's utterly insane to think about. So we, have we like, might need to dial up the Ferenc Varos content uh, as we get yeah. deeper into the Europa League. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that was just really funny, and I guess we hadn't really thought about that in a while. I actually have a friend who played for Ferenc Varos women for half a season, Cindy Loxanen, who now plays or played for Betis and now plays 
uh, for Porto or Braga, I believe. You know who plays for Faring Faros, Nick? I don't. No, please. Adam eliminate. Bogdan, the worst Liverpool really? keeper of all time. Oh, I was yeah. going to guess like Lazar Markovic or something like that. But I oh, guess he's probably right. more of a Red, Red Star, Star Belgrade. Belgrade. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. he's probably in, yeah. But uh, yeah, anyways, um, that's a that's a. I do one. not miss um, Adam Bogdan, let me tell you. He was so bad. He was like the worst backup goalie. You know how bad you have to be to be remembered as a bad backup goalie? Oh, you know who else plays for that? Mohamed Besic. Formerly of uh, of Everton, remember that transfer? Uh, the Bosnian. Yeah, he was sick for you, Caleb, in football manager for a couple of years, right? Yeah, well, he was. I think were Bosnia and Herzegovina in like one of the Euros. Yeah, they were in Euro eighteen, maybe. Yeah, I, mean, I think it was a little earlier, but he like, was Euro. really good in with that Jekko, midfield with yeah. uh, with Pjanic as well. Um, and ev- and then Everton snapped him up, and then he proved to be, you know, he was a good passer. Oh, no, they made he... the 20, they made the twenty fourteen World Cup. They were in oh, Argentina's, the World Cup. They were in Argentina's group. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, he he was not a great Premier League player, but he is a guy that played for Everton some number of times, I guess. So. Yeah. The Anyways, perfect we, player to end up playing at randomly at Frank Varos. Yes, they also have one of the many Adama Triores, but I think we've probably now hit our quota, uh, our quota for Frank Varos content. So for all of you listeners uh, tuning in from Magyar, the the Old Republic, uh, you know, we, we salute you. Uh, if you see a a strikingly handsome man with a brown beard. You know exactly who it is um, walking around your city. But anyways, we should probably talk about the best game in the history of the sport, which happened, you know, three and a half days ago. Uh, Argentina, France, in what was a rematch of one of the more entertaining games in World Cup history. And before we even talk about the game itself, I feel like there were just so many storylines that led into this game and i feel like every single one of them came to a really fitting conclusion as a result of what happened across the 120 minutes like honestly looking back on it it feels like a wrestling match in that you had all of these different leads or lead-ins that eventually um got resolved uh someone on twitter put it like they felt they had just watched the final episode of soccer because of how nicely everything got wrapped up it certainly yes. felt that way. Yeah, for sure. I think, firstly, this, Nathan, you mentioned that this is potentially the, the greatest game in the history of the sport. And I think it is certainly the best final I have ever witnessed. I think certainly soccer finals in particular can be somewhat cagey and tactical and methodical and, for lack of a better word, boring at times. This game was one of those games that you are going to, and this podcast is going to be filled with an abundance of cliches as you know, the past couple of days have been in trying to come up with the words to describe just the pure unadulterated, amazing narrative that accompanied the 120 minutes plus penalty kicks of this game, France versus Argentina. But yeah, I felt like you could absolutely, you know, that photo of Lionel Messi on the shoulders of Cunaguero holding the world cup trophy aloft after uh, winning a 3-3 World Cup final on penalties is storybook. It's storybook. It's the fairy tale ending that we all wanted for Lionel Messi, but probably never thought he would actually be able to achieve just given the career trajectory he's had with Argentina, you know, failure after failure after failure. Um, I think, you know, certainly these two teams coming into this game weren't perfect in any shape or form. You know, France, we saw be a little bit conservative in this tournament. 
uh, sort of be kind of like <laughs> they kind of a Tifa football had a great way of describing them in that they played sort of like a luxury Burnley, like a, a team that really just is okay with sitting off the ball and attacking with, you know, their, their more experienced and flair and quality players. They can do like the Burnley style and the luxury capacity. And Argentina, who I think, you know, started this World Cup with a 2-1 loss to Saudi Arabia, really was able to get it together. I think a lot of credit has to go to Scaloni for changing up the tactics game in and game out, you know, playing a back three to counter to counteract the Netherlands and switching to like a more 4-4-2 formation against Croatia to keep things compact. And then in this game, you know, bringing Angel Di Maria back in on that left-hand side to really cook Teo Hernandez and kind of be the story of the first half of that, of that game is incredible. But I don't know, Caleb, like I just... <laughs> This I was so, like Nathan was saying, I was so overwhelmed in watching this game. I was watching it at an Irish pub in St. Andrews in Scotland, a very pro, messy crowd. You know, obviously the Argentinian Scots. anti-France as well? Indeed, yeah, highly anti-France. Um, whenever the Argentine Scots, Alexis McAllister, would get on the ball, there'd be a huge, huge roar from the, the Scottish uh, faithful in that bar. But it was just, uh, Caleb, I thought this was... In a simple word, I thought this was purely incredible. The best spectacle I've seen in the sport in quite some time. And I I am just sort of left like speechless and in awe even after three days of witnessing it. Yeah, no, I mean, I know it's been several days. We're recording on Wednesday now for, for Nathan and, and I, and obviously Thursday for you, Nick, a few hours ahead. Um, but I'm still, you know, as we're talking about this and I'm looking, you know, back at the stats and watching some of the highlights, I'm still like very like emotionally overwhelmed by this game. I think looking back in hindsight, it's so much better. I think of a, for Messi to have won this final than the 2014 final. Like I think if he'd won in 2014, he would have finished soccer too soon. (laughs) Um, but now, you know, in, in definitely, you know, the, the end of his career, winning like this, winning by scoring in every single phase of this tournament, in the group stage, in the round of 16, in the quarterfinal, in the semifinal, and the final. That's something that's never been done before. Um, and I think despite the challenges that this team faced, you know, against the Netherlands, obviously in this game when you know, with 15 or even fewer minutes to go, they really thought they had this one. And then I'm sure we'll get onto this, you know, Mbappe pulling them back. Um, and then an extra time too. It was, it was a storybook final and it was, it had all of the the parts that you'd want in a, in a piece of fiction. You know, it had the, like, what seems like the triumph, but that's really a head fake. It has, you know, the fear that they're losing momentum um, but in the end, it was, you know, messy and I guess, you know, Salt Bay too, um, mm-hmm. lifting the trophy. And and it was it was beautiful in every dimension. It was beautiful on the human level for Messi. But I think it was also, you know, a great there was there was a lot of like soccer connoisseurship to get out of this too. Well, that's in terms what I'm of that's why tactics. I'm, yeah, well that's why um, I'm saying it was like a wrestling match because yeah. like it really played to the strengths of a knowledgeable crowd. Even with like, um, even with 
like Messi scoring a hat trick and then winding up as the loser, or sorry, Mbappe scoring a hat trick, winding up as the loser is a classic, like, um, it's a classic trope. Like it, it really did feel like there were all of these elements of like, oh, you even had like the early substitution um, that sort of changed the tide of the game. You had, um, you know, Emmy Martinez doing his like, anti- like so many things about this. The were, near were, were finish perfect. of Kolomoani drawing yeah, the last false, yeah, save exactly. from Martinez. Yeah. But I think, yeah, and I think, Nick, you already mentioned, I think, the big tactical element. So, right, in this starting 11, I think Nathan and I, we were trying to figure out for both teams what it might look like for Argentina, the formation for France, whether, you know, they would be healthy from illness. And it seemed that they were, um, at least in terms of the starting lineup. But I think the big choice, as you mentioned, Nick, was definitely to play Angel Di Maria, who's had fitness issues throughout this tournament. I don't think played at all. Um, in either the the semifinal or the quarterfinal, he gets the big start in his non-favored position here at left wing. Um, and I think Scaloni really identified the fact that France um, do not have, you know, great defensive strength on the outside. Theo Hernandez is very attacking oriented and obviously Mbappe is not giving him very much. And then Kunde is a natural center back, not super comfortable at right back. And then Ousmane Dembele, um, is also not offering a lot defensively. Usman as we Nibale saw, had one of the worst World Cup final yeah. performances of all time. Sort and of and I think Cromer esque. Yeah, I think I think, or at least he'll probably want to forget it too. Um, but I think. That's for the people who know. Um, but. <laughs> Poor Christoph Kramer. <laughs> but I, I okay, I think Deschamps threw Dembele under the bus a little bit. But obviously, Scaloni's tactics worked to treat where Argentina were able to really move the ball side to side, distribute long balls, and get situations where it's Di Maria versus Dembele right outside the box. And what is Dembele supposed to do there? Obviously, not foul the man, but like that's not a situation that if you're Deschamps, you want to set up your team in. And I think there was a bit of, I don't know, naivete about this French team, or at least a sense that like, eh, as you mentioned, they kind of just like do their thing and hope that it works out. And I think Scaloni definitely won the tactical battle um, in my mind. And I think that's just another reason why, you know, you wanted this Argentina team to win, because as Nathan and I discussed sort of last time, I'm not sure this is really a vintage France team. um, And I'm not sure it's a team that if it did win, the World Cup, we would really remember the team so much as we would remember, you know, just the man Mbappe. And I think while Messi obviously led the Argentina team in many ways, it will go down as truly a team effort. I mean, it has to be when you win in in a penalty shootout as well. Well, you just think about how many, you know, man of the match performances there were on display in this Argentina team in this game. Not only Messi, but you have to talk about, like, you can't write the story of this World Cup final without talking about you know alexis McAllister, enzo fernandez emmy martinez who i think has written yeah. himself into... and that pass i mean it's the team goal for the second one right where messi lays it off to what is it alvarez or DePaul, who lays it off to McAllister, who lays it off to di maria who hits it in like this was a a team victory it truly was yeah and like i mean we may as well go through a little bit of the flow of the game as well as we're talking about this because I think if you separate this game into two halves, um, when you look at the 130 minutes or 135 minutes that were played, including added time, the first half 
was actually pretty boring because Argentina scored off the penalty when Di Maria uh, cooked Dembele. Uh, and yeah, he goes down a little bit easy, but he clearly wins the penalty and Messi scores um, his first of a number of penalties um, on the day. And then Di Maria scores, as you mentioned, on that great um, on that great team move. And uh, Di Maria had just recently published an article in the Players' Tribune talking about how painful it was to not be fit for that 2014 final um, and how a lot of people sort of thought that he was being held out because Real Madrid wanted to get the transfer money for him. And if he was injured, they wouldn't be able to get the fee, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a very sort of cathartic moment for him, I think. And I thought he played really well for someone who'd only played, you know, eight minutes in the last two weeks. Um, and then if you sort of extend that half all the way to like the 70 minute mark, so approximately, you know, halfway through the, the the full course of the game, Argentina were really pretty dominant. They obviously forced Deschamps into the two early changes, taking off Giroud and Dembélé, which you really never see at any level of soccer. Players, you know, getting subbed off before halftime. There were obviously, you know, France had an illness going through the squad and Giroud was carrying a knock as well. So that might have played into it um, too. But and then France looked quite ill to start this yeah, game. Yeah, they just looked you know, like, yeah, they looked you're like wondering how much sluggish. of a factor, exactly. You're wondering how much of a factor the illness really played, how, how they were able to, you know, set up in training, if they were able to train effectively, you know, at all leading into this game, like how disjointed was their preparation. So yeah, it certainly... You know that cast a shadow over I think the first half of this game, yeah. but I think you have to you have to give credit to Deschamps, who I think realized that you know they were getting stretched on the width on the on the wings and that they needed to centralize the play a little bit. And so taking off Dembélé and Giroud, who Giroud I think was totally isolated in this game, Lequipe <laughs> doing a classic Lequipe move post match of not even giving Dembélé or Giroud rankings in you know the final like <laughs> ranking so, situation. Which is so French. Um... Yeah, yeah bringing then... on, you know, Taram and uh, it, it was, I think, the right move in, in, in this game just to sort of centralize the play and give France, you know, a bit more to work with going forward yeah. and pressing off the ball. And then at that 70 minute mark, which is where I'm sort of marking as the the sort of sliding doors moment, um, you know, Coman and Kamavinga came on for Griezmann and Hernandez Griezmann, who had a terrific tournament, but was fairly neutralized by the fact that um, playing five attackers and one true center midfielder doesn't really work in a in a World Cup final or didn't work this time. And then, you know, in the 80th minute, Mbappe scores after Kolomowani, uh earns a penalty after Otamendi for no real reason decides to take him. All Otamendi had to do, by the way, was just kick that ball um, out of bounds. And instead, he maybe got a little bit too cocky. But then Mbappe scores a penalty and then 45 seconds later, uh, Kingsley Coman does really, really well, whips a ball all the way across the field to Mbappe, who scores a vintage Mbappe goal. And then, you know, in Kingsley the span Coman of two minutes, Peter winning Crouch the ball off of Messi. <laughs> yes. No, it was uh, in the span of two minutes, this game totally shifted. Because at that point, when you score two goals back to back, I sort of thought, oh, no, like France has all the momentum now. Um, they're going to win. And then this game gets to extra time after a long period of added time. I think we've had like 10 minutes or something of added time. Uh, also, the goals came wanted, after, yeah. they came after Di Maria was was substituted off. And I think in the moment for Marcus Acuna in order to shore up, you know, that left flank in particular. And I think there was a lot of people in the moment criticizing that. But I think that 
as you mentioned, Di Maria hadn't played a lot of football, and I'm not sure he could really have played much longer. But certainly without him, um, it did, I think, seed some of that, you know, attacking threat back and and allowed France to get back into the oh, game. Yeah, and also having seen what Brazil did earlier on in the tournament with a one-goal lead, it makes sense. Like, it's a natural sort of soccer flow thing to bring on a defender for an attacker, especially in a World Cup final. Um, and but then extra time... Extra time was like end-to-end action, though, too, for all 30 minutes. No, right, yeah. And I think that's that's where this game turns into a bit of a basketball match. You know, you have Messi scoring that. What you think is the winning goal, you think he's done it. You know, the goal line technology declares that, you know, the ball has crossed the line. You get a bit of a double celebration, a bit of chaos. In, in the pub, we had no idea... <laughs> what was really going on until you saw the Argentina players, you know, running towards the corner flag and finally being able to celebrate. And you think that's it. You know, Messi has toe poked his way to world cup glory, but no, you know, Kylian Mbappe strikes the ball at the hand of an Argentinian defender. I think it was, um, it was, it was Montiel. Or Montiel. I think it was Gonzalo. Yeah. Gonzalo Montiel, who we think even another narrative, because he's the one who ends up, you know, scoring the winning penalty. Right. But another, you know, Mbappe beats Martinez from the spot yet again. <laughs> to the same side, three, three. too. <laughs> and you just have, you breathe this, you know, sigh of, like Nathan was saying, like, oh my God, like, it's, it is just not to be, you know, you're going to experience another situation of Argentinian heartbreak and tears. And then Ibu Kanate plays this spectacular ball, spectacular ball from the back into the path of the Frankfurt striker, Kolo Moani, who is coming in, was a late uh, inclusion in the squad for Christopher Nkunku, who had to withdraw from the, the squad due to injury at the beginning of the tournament. You know, sort of this unknown player, but I think has really done a job for this French national team, you know, scoring the second goal against Morocco in the semifinal, has a chance to bury this game, a beautiful, beautiful chance, and Emmy Martinez with really what is going to go down is for me one of the saves of all time one of the great saves of all time in any generation of soccer unbelievable unbelievable uh, just well i bet 30 seconds after that and 30 seconds after that lataro martinez misses an open goal Um, (laughs) it was as if he got possessed by the okay argentina in general played a great game however Lautaro Martinez had one of the worst substitute performances. It was sort of Thomas Partey in the Champions League against Real Madrid-esque. Like, every single touch he had was just terrible. He was actually a net neg- Like, they would have been better playing with 10 men. Uh, but he really could have won it. Dude, you know, he's had an, he had an insane tournament. Like, thank God he scored his penalty. <laughs> I know. <laughs> literally, for oh, like dude, several yeah. games now, he's come on. And I've had like three worse. beautiful chances and just sky them. My favorite one, I think it was against Australia, maybe, where Messi's occupying literally the entire Australia defense. Lataro, you know, positions himself well to the left of the box. Messi releases it. He's within, you know, eight yards of the goal and has it set up perfectly for his right foot, his favorite right foot to just curl it across the net and he skies it. He skies it. So Lataro was in general a disaster in this tournament. Um, but and my favorite part was that, like, I think I texted <laughs> this to the group chat. Like, you could tell from just like when he was being prepped to come on, and he was having this like little individual like, moment on pants. the touchline. He just did not look like he wanted the smoke. 
Yeah, uh, talk about someone oh. who was ill. Like, <laughs> I know. He, was, he, he, was, he was hard Korean. on the mate before the game or I something. I think so. Or, or the barbecue. I, I, one of the scenes after this game is there's a video of Messi <laughs> hugging the team chef, um, which I really liked. Um, I will note, though, just for posterity, that Mbappe's second penalty in the 118th minute should not have been given because prior to the Argentina handball, which was a handball, it was actually a French player, I forget who, who hits it with his own arm out to Mbappe. And so I don't know how VAR missed that. Um, I guess that was before it was able to review it by like a second. Um, But technically, it should not have been a penalty because France actually handballed first. But that, but that's for another drama's sake, there. it absolutely should have been a penalty. I think, okay, here's my conspiracy theory. I think they saw the France penalty and knew that people were going to be so focused on the moment a split second later. They're like, we're just going to roll with this for the drama. Yeah, I mean... That's a conspiracy theory, but, like, I half believe it. 40% believe it. Yeah, I mean, I also think that, like, causality is something that VAR gets really wrong, like, a lot of the time, I think. So, I don't know. I was I was fine with it being given as a penalty and the fact that it took like two days for the footage to come out and be like, oh, maybe this shouldn't have been given. Um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like it was a, it was still an OK decision. I think the referee, by the way, Simon Marchiniak, incredible was game, really good. And he's getting a lot of plaudits, but he was fan- he was everything is not um but he he nailed every single decision like every every penalty every uh handball every sort of controversial thing even booking Giroud and then booking <laughs> booking I don't know if you guys saw Emmy Martinez get booked in the penalty shootout because before Sean Manny took his kick Martinez the ball just booted it to the side to be fair Martinez is just like such a um he's a shithouser and like He's also just like an elite penalty goalie, uh, but also low key kind of like a... he's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dick. He's <laughs> yeah. cool. Okay, actually, he's not yeah. just a dick. He's kind of insane. Um, like he won the Golden Glove or whatever, and then immediately started thrusting it as if it were you know a phallus <laughs> in front of um, all of like the Qatari like... dignitaries and Infantino. <laughs> it was the anti bishops, right? It was like he was like he saw how they dignified Messi, you know, with the robe, and he was like, I have to bring this back down. Uh, to earth yeah he had the mask of Mbappe in the parade yeah I was, was about to say maybe to be fair Mbappe did score past him four times if you include the penalty shootout so like maybe not the great I mean in theory yeah. that's a response to Mbappe saying that he didn't think that like South American teams played good enough competition yada 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 whatever it's a dumb beef to have though because one you just won the world cup Two, if there's any person you shouldn't be crapping on, it's the dude who just scored a hat trick in the World Cup final and like is gonna surpass Messi at the next World Cup for the all-time leading World Cup score at the age of 27. But anyways, um, yeah, but I think a lot of funny right. storylines there. Emmy Martinez definitely he has mastered like all the elements of a penalty shootout, which is to say it's more than just like lining up and saving penalties. He understands the like psychological dimension of this. Um, so he's perfectly happy to take that yellow if it means just like brutally disrespecting Chuamini, making him walk to go pick up the ball. Like he'd already won at that yeah. point. And, and on top of that, he happens to also be, you know, quite a good penalty shot stopper himself. And I think this was in, you know, complete contrast to, you know, Yuris, 
who had no, I think, presence in the shootout, did not perturb any of the players. And you'd think that given that France had just scored, you know, a few minutes prior that the momentum might be with them. But it really was, I think, you know, Emmy Martinez, who was able to completely shift um, the momentum back to the Argentina side. And I think, again, in every basically phase of this game, Argentina showed they could get it done. Arguably, their defense was a little bit unstable at key moments throughout this tournament, but they showed that they can win no matter the situation. And I think that's very impressive. Right. And I think more so than ever, you saw how important and meaningful this supporting cast was to Lionel Messi and his goal of achieving this dream of winning the World Cup. You know, the final scenes of all the players running over to him, you know, not just um, you know, the older players who have been with him for a while, like Di Maria, you know, like Otamendi, but particularly, you know, the younger crowd like Enzo Fernandez and Christian Romero, who, you know, both embraced him and said, you know, we did this for you, you know, we won this for you, you deserve this. And so I think this this team had a perfect balance of, you know, players who had been with Messi for a long time and also players who grew up probably idolizing Lionel Messi, like Alexis McAllister, who you know, in his interview after the World Cup said the first time I met Messi, you know, I was um, so nervous, shivering, all of these like things because I didn't know like what, how he was going to see me or, you know, how I was going to be, you know, in his presence playing with him. And I think that probably was a huge motivating factor for this Argentina team, you know, when they go in previous finals, you know, Argentina We've seen them go down in games and be really deflated, you know, particularly in those Copa America finals against Chile. You know, they would go down or suffer some sort of um, suffer some sort of drawback and setback in those games and not be able to find their way back into it. But this team, I thought, was far and away, you know, the most emotionally resilient team in this competition. You know, they have gone through so that Vout Veghorst, you know, last minute set piece trickery free kick which probably would have deflated any other team, but they still you know, find a way to pick themselves up and win on a penalty shootout. The loss to Saudi Arabia, which clouded you know, their first game, uh, going up against you know, Luka Modric and a Croatia team that you know, never seemed to say die. And then in this game too, you know, where they're facing off against the man who is going to take Messi's mantle. We should talk about Kylian Mbappe because I think he had in defeat you know, one of the greatest performances ever uh, in a high-pressure soccer situation. And just, I think, of all time, you know, we're going to speak about the Kylian Mbappe World Cup Patrick, even though France went on to lose this game. But I just thought, you know, this, like you said, Caleb, this, this Argentina team knew how to get it done. And I thought this was the perfect team for Lionel Messi to achieve getting that, getting that World Cup trophy. Yeah, and Kylian Mbappe finishes the tournament as the Golden Boot winner with eight goals and two assists. He finds himself fourth in all-time World Cup scoring, just three goals behind Messi at the age of 23. He actually turned 24 And four behind Mirza for the all-time leaderboard. Yes. So, um, look, Mbappe at the age of 23 is clearly the uh, the heir apparent to the um, the sort of title. He, he will be obviously a completely different profile than Messi, but he will be the greatest player and maybe already is the greatest player of this generation and you know the comparison between Messi and Ronaldo people have already sort of used Erling Holland um, as a comparison the only difference is you know um, Mbappe got his World Cup at the age of 19 
and has spent his entire career playing in France, whereas Messi obviously did it in Spain for the first two decades. But it did feel like a passing of the torch moment, and Mbappe didn't really put a foot wrong, even after moving positions in the middle of the game. Um, his ability to just like change a game so quickly, like even if he's been marked out of the game for 70 minutes or 75 minutes, he is just a torment for any defense to have to deal with. Um, and the good news is that, like, look, he's 23 years old. In theory, he has up to four more World Cups to play in, um, having already won one. So there's, like, really no doubt in my mind that Mbappe, um, you know, barring, like, major catastrophe in terms of injuries, will end up as the all-time leading World Cup goal scorer. He'll probably shatter the international scoring record as well at some point in his career, just given how early and how prolific his start was. So, you know, hats off to Kylian Mbappe, who d- literally dragged France kicking and screaming back into this game um, and, and kept them in it and really made the uh, made this World Cup final so great. He is a, uh, a joy to watch. Oh, yeah, he's he's insane. And I think while this tournament, I think, cemented what was already obvious to all like rationally thinking people that Messi is certainly better than Cristiano Ronaldo um, and, you know, arguably the greatest of all time. We don't need to litigate, you know, like the this generation versus the past generation. But I think with Mbappe, I think he has an interesting comparison to honestly, like more of a Pele because he, I would argue, actually has had a more successful, you know, international career than club career. And that's not to say that he hasn't, you know, like excelled in France, but I think it's not like he's won. He's, he hasn't played in the best league or leagues in Europe, really. He hasn't won a Champions League yet, but he has performed on the biggest stage for this France national team. Um, and I still think that he needs to make, you know, a move in the future out of France and away from PSG. But I think on his current pace, um, he's certainly already in, I think, the pantheon of greats. And I think by the end of his career, um, he will have surpassed even his own idol, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, because he is arguably even more lethal um, than him and has been more prolific from an earlier point in his career. I mean, Ronaldo really was like scoring a decent amount. Um, and then in his last season at Man you really took off. And then obviously in his time at Madrid, you know, exploded. But Mbappe has been scoring basically a goal a game since the age of 17. And, you know, there's really only one other person that we've we've seen that from. Um, and that is, you know, Pele. So I think he is well on his way to being, you know, probably the the second best player of all time. He's hit 300 goals by the age of 25. Like, right. that's, that's just nuts. But what, what do you guys think of my take? More. That, that he, he'll be known as better than CR7 by the end of his career. Yeah, I mean, like, we, we saw Kylian Mbappe return to PSG training today, uh, only three days removed from the World Cup when he had, it looked like he had, like, a, a, a like a allotted 10-day period to, you know, rest and recuperate and um, get his mentality back on track. But this is a player with an elite mentality at the age of 23 and a competitive drive that, you know, it can be matched by the likes of CR7 and Lionel Messi and the greats of the game. I also think that this is an incredible turnaround for Mbappe because if you go back, you know, a few corner kicks ago from a few months ago when we were talking about, you know, GM 
general manager Mbappe and his new contract and him, you know, having transfer approval of, of things at the administrative level at PSG and sort of you know, laughing about like the situation over there, our tenor has totally changed because Mbappe has forced it to change. His drive, his ethic, the fact that he pretty much him and, and, and Griezmann as well, but Mbappe is going to be the story of this, of this French national team going forward and certainly in this World Cup. The fact that he he put the team on his back, you know, there's footage that came out today of the fact that he was the person who led their halftime team talk and was able to mobilize them back into the game from a mentality standpoint, as well as, you know, obviously a scoring standpoint. I think you, in this game, you know, Nathan mentioned a, a passing of the torch. I certainly think you could describe it as that. I just thought this was a player who I think has been derided a bit in the past few months reminding the world that yes, you know, he is the heir apparent to this throne along with, you know, Erling Holland, but I think certainly Kylian Mbappe as Caleb was saying on the global stage, on the international stage is going to be celebrated in that same, you know, CR7 Ronaldo Messi pantheon and I think perhaps should already be celebrated in that pantheon considering what he's achieved at this age and just how how incredible a player he is. I think Mbappe also benefits a little bit from the fact that he's French. Obviously, it's um, not something that's really up for choice. Um, but, you know, Erling Holland obviously has spent the last month, you know, chilling in Manchester or wherever he's been. Um, because it's a lot harder to qualify for the World Cup if you're Norway or if you are, I mean, even if you're Portugal. Like, we forget because it was before our time, really. But, Prior to 2002 and then hosting the Euros in 04, Portugal, like in the pre-Ronaldo era, Portugal were relatively unthreatening as an international team. Obviously, they had Figo as the sort of golden boy in the pre-Ronaldo era. But Deco, Ronaldo but... and Deco, yeah, and Deco Eusebio, too. Um, Eusebio. But if they weren't, um, you know, they weren't at the same level of... Um, of competition that we've known them to be at for the last 14 years and you know aside from the luckiest and most undeserved euro championship of all time you know it would take an erling holland type performance to bring norway up to that level whereas mbappe i think will have a relatively easier time defining his international legacy a la pele who obviously was doing this alongside socrates and garincha you know some of the greatest players of his generation as well. And from a nation like Brazil, which really defined the sort of soccer ethos of, of his era. So I like your take, Caleb. Um, I like it a lot. And uh, obviously there's like two clubs that Mbappe could move to ever. Um, those being Manchester City and Real Madrid. And either of right. those would be good proving grounds. And I'm sure that storyline will uh, continue throughout the remainder of his career. Cause I'm sure he is at this moment in time the uh, the most valuable player in the world in terms of a potential transfer. So right, but yeah, um, and, and to both your points on that front, you know, like Caleb was saying, this is not a vintage French national team. I think they made it to the final just by sheer remembrance of how to win big games and the fact that a lot of these players played at the last World Cup final in 2018 and and just knew how to maneuver their way to winning results and to, be, and to get there. But like no Pogba, no Conte, no Benzema, no Nkunku. None of these superstar players were able to assist in Bobby, in Bobby, Jesus Christ. None of these superstar players were able to assist 
Mbappe in getting to this point. It really was just the him and Griezmann show. And then, you know, like, like you said, Nathan, Griezmann just sort of bottomed out uh, and ran out of juice in the final. And it was all left on the shoulders of Mbappe to carve away, carve a path back into this game for France. And it was truly one of the most transcendental solo efforts I've ever seen on the soccer pitch. And I think you can, you know, deride him all you want, but this is this is going to be a player who's going to be in the top 10 pantheon come the end of his career. I also think that, you know, this game, as far as sort of storylines go, it did highlight the fact that Messi, as great as he is and as good as he was in this game and in this tournament, he's not the same player that he was in 2014. I think between 2010 and 2014, between those two World Cups, Messi was at his peak and probably even into the sort of 2016 era. Like that six-year period was probably his peak. And, you know, some people and pundits were talking about, and even some players were like, look, it's hard to play against Messi because, you know, he just chills on defense and just waits for the ball to come to him before doing amazing stuff. But like in 20, from 2010 to 2014, Messi was basically on the ball for like, I don't know, 25% of every game, like his fitness levels and, you know, his physical ability was just better then. And so it's crazy to think that as good as he was to not today on Sunday, as good as he was there. And he showcased it a couple times, like how quick he still is like shedding defenders and turning sort of like a golf cart in traffic. Um, it's crazy to think that like, when we remember this tournament, this is Messi operating at like 75 or 80% of what he was in his peak, which was probably between 2012 and 2014. And so it's it's a, a testament to just how great he is compared to everyone else this generation, um, because even a, a Messi at sort of three-quarters staff shines brighter a mixing metaphors here but shines brighter than than anyone else in, in the history of this era of soccer at least yeah and people i mean people have criticized messi for the whole walking thing for basically his entire career um but when you can do it he can do um like come on guys uh because even him just walking around is actually so unsettling to the other team um and his ability to sort of know where to be to sort of his attacking positioning i guess is so amazing that um that that is valuable defensively and i think in this game too especially in those sort of nervier moments um when the game was was tied or argentina you know no longer had the lead um messi there were a few points where he actually came back and and defended and so i think you're right messi's consistency even you know, in a in a slightly diminished state as you want to be when you're, you know, 35. Um, and, and again, his diminished state is still, you know, he I think he has like the most assists in club in top five leagues in Europe. He has got a bunch of goals. Like he's not bad. Um, and I think Messi reminded everyone of that um, if they'd forgotten in this tournament. I know we've been talking though for, you know, 40, 43 odd minutes now purely about this game and I think it's it's notable to me um that you know we've been so engrossed in what was an all-time soccer game um that it, it did kind of blot out if we're ready to switch to this topic you know all of the rest of the the tournament and and the controversy surrounding it and I think unfortunately that's kind of like the point um at the end of the day but I do 
you know, again, just want to note how, while this is a great triumph for Messi and Argentina, um, it's also, I think, been a bit of a, in a weird way, a catastrophe of, of you know, human rights and also in, in some ways for the future of soccer as well. No, I think you're right. And this whole World Cup tournament and process for Qatar was always a precursor for them to uh, lobby a bid for the Olympics. So I don't think we're done in terms of discussing them in terms of sports washing and the like. But yeah, I think you guys spoke a great deal about this on the last episode. And I wanted to sort of echo a lot of your sentiments and the fact that, yes, even though I think football wise, this was one of the more entertaining World Cups that we've gotten in recent memory. You know, you had so many amazing storylines, Morocco making it to the semifinals, a lot of great matches that have got, that went deep into extra time, a lot of incredible goals and moments like that about Vickhurst, you know, free kick. Uh, and obviously, you know, Qatar gets the crowning achievement and the, the honor of awarding Messi the World Cup trophy. But even that moment felt a little sour to me, you know, A, watching Gianni Infantino parade around following you know his horrendous comments at the today i feel argentinian yeah exactly (laughs) he looks like an egg following just some horrendous comments at the beginning of this tournament that i think shouldn't be forgotten and also the fact that the 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 beauty of the argentinian jersey you know Lionel messi being presented with that trophy should have just been a pure moment instead no like he has to be draped in this qatari garment and can you imagine like in 2026 if i don't know like joe biden presents i don't know like killing mbappe let's say or like you know a ronald mcdonald bib or something like that it's just it was just such a blatant it's kind of reminded me nathan it's very niche but it kind of reminded me nathan of when the wwe was in saudi arabia for the first time yeah it it does a wash with propaganda and ads for how great you know Riyadh Saudi Arabia was and we should all go visit there and how grateful they were to MBS and the Saudi Arabian ministry or um, I mean maybe even a better comparison is when Fight Island was occurring during the pandemic and UFC held some of the biggest um, you know fights in its history on a sort of private island in Qatar correct it was also off Abu Dhabi it it was in Abu Dhabi yeah, I mean, sort of same thing, right? And it sort of comes to the territory. And I think there's been a lot of whataboutism from everyone because soccer is such a global game and the parties involved who are all inherently flawed from us as consumers to players to particularly executives um, are all flawed and all partake in flawed global systems. And I think I don't think anyone's here to argue that. Because like, look, obviously the United States, Canada and Mexico as the next host all three nations have things that have that are terribly wrong about them. You know, Russia in 2018 was sort of viewed as the first sort of precipitously bad nation to host a World Cup. But look at what Brazil did to their favelas before 2014. And look at the construction process in South Africa in 2010. Like functionally, this is all a byproduct of geopolitics and capitalism. And like, we're not disputing that. At the same time, it's okay to just like, be a soccer fan and be a person and say like, look, Infantino, what you said was absolutely God awful. And what Arsene Wenger said about, you know, teams taking a stand on social issues really sucked as an Arsenal fan who grew up idolizing him. It sucks to see people and the governing organizations of the sport 
be so committed to being on the wrong side of history in literally every single facet. And when you add into the fact that the, um, the, the, the performances on the pitch will forever be linked with the host nation and with the sort of sphere of influence or spheres of influence of this tournament, it sucks because you want, you want your sports, you want your global game to be a force of good. And outside of some players and some teams and some companies, unfortunately, it just isn't and it never will be. And this tournament more than others, I think, was a reminder of that, which sucks. You know, it sucks. It does suck. I would agree. And it's just, it's, it's, it's sad because like you said, Nathan, this, this crowning achievement moment, like, like the, the season finale of soccer, Lionel Messi, the greatest player of all time, finally getting his hands on the World Cup trophy is forever going to happen in asterisk Doha, Qatar. And not, you know, on the shoulders of like Caleb was saying, these horrific human rights abuses. And let's not forget, you know, the countless amounts of migrant workers known or unknown who have passed away and uh, tragically in building these stadiums and also just the the lack of, of transparency surrounding Qatar's preliminary bid to even host this tournament and just you know the fact that in in 2030 and beyond you know there's talk of Saudi Arabia you know placing a bid for the World Cup and how horrific that would even begin to even be just to even talk about that and digest that you know following you know all the the atrocities that have occurred there from a, a geopolitical and a sporting perspective as well in the past four years as they've risen to prominence and it's it's just yeah this felt like for me a gross turning point just in terms of where particularly FIFA are in terms of like you said you know staying on the wrong side of history and really just doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on a perspective and a stance that I think they feel like is going to quote unquote grow the game. You know, we saw they just care about money. I mean, that's no, it's it is all about money because you saw like in this World Cup that you know we've discussed is taking place in the middle of the season. We've seen how many players have gone down with injury beforehand, you know, trying to get ready for it. The fact that player welfare is a is a preliminary concern for us always on this podcast. How frequently we talk about the fact that the fixture calendar is so congested, and then on the eve of the World Cup final, you have Johnny Infantino talking about the fact that he wants to introduce a new expanded Club World Cup in twenty twenty five, just to compete with you know his his ongoing beef with UEFA. So it's just you know it's sickening. There's no regard for players. There's no regard for fans. There's no regard for the people who work you know, behind the scenes and trying to put this all together. And there's there's just a lack of respect for the general global soccer fan base on display here that I think is quite sickening. And not only, you know, disrespect for the global soccer fan base, but just global, the global community as a whole. I agree. And I think the, I guess, frustrating part is that there's no, there's no clear way out because we you know, we broadly, people that enjoy soccer, which I imagine some billions of people, I don't know the exact stat, watch this game. Like, 
probably nearly between half the planet. Between 3 billion, between two, 3 and 4 billion. Yeah, yes. so like 40, 40% of the planet was watching this game. 40% of the planet. Like, we all love this game so much that it would take a lot for us to look away, unfortunately. And because we can't look away, and maybe that's an issue with ourselves, I don't know, FIFA, et cetera, can really continue to do whatever they want with basic impunity because this World Cup, to my knowledge, was like the most lucrative and like financial success ever. Right. Yeah, not really not not in terms of the expanded field in 2026. Right. And and obviously, I don't know if it comes out like they spent like two hundred billion dollars building it. So I don't know, you know, whether Cutter came out even. But in terms of just revenues during the tournament itself. My understanding is it was the highest ever. And I think. That's right. I think it's hard to view that as an indictment on on myself, maybe selfishly as as a consumer, as you said, Nathan. But it's certainly an indictment on the system that we all know and can talk about the fact that like thousands of people died so that I could watch Messi win a World Cup. Um, And yet that is going to continue to happen, I think. Yeah. And like, look, there's no. I don't know. It's not that different from like how I feel about many other sort of widespread systems like capitalism or government where like our degree of complicitness is sort of like, there's a baseline that's like pretty high. Like every time I, like we were talking, you know, before the the podcast about, you know, eating at certain fast food places that treat their employees poorly um, or like that union bust, et cetera. And like, how complicit are we in that structure? How complicit are we in, I mean, these are all sort of wide, wide um, questions that, impact and sort of dictate the flow of our day-to-day life and so it's interesting and sort of sad to see the fact that like soccer is just as much in the hands of of, of oligarchs and plutocrats as pretty much every other aspect of our life when you look too closely not to get like super conspiratorial but you know it's a good thing to remember that it's the people and the players that make the game what it is and not the bureaucrats at fifa or uefa or at the many mysterious shell corporations that sort of finance and dictate these events. So as hard as it is to disconnect those two, um, you know, hopefully in 2026, uh, we will see slightly better conditions and like fewer to no deaths, et cetera. And I'm sure that there'll be plenty of critiques against the United States when that time comes. And um, I think it'll prove to be again, another, another talking point and obviously like look this isn't going away anytime soon because that's just the way the world is you know so on a, on a sort of <laughs> a much more depressing note to end the pod oh, yeah. uh, sorry <laughs> no but i think like like caleb was saying it's an important discussion to have because we can get caught up in the fervor of this game and nathan i think that illustrates your point so finely is the fact that this discussion completely goes away when we're talking about Lionel messi you know, scoring in the World Cup final and finally achieving his life's dream, you know, that becomes the story more so than the road that was paved in tragedy to get here. And so I think, you know, these discussions, while you know, definitely a depressing note to end our podcast on, are just increasingly, vi- increasingly vital, especially since, you know, a World Cup just kind of ends and we move on 
and the club the club season starts up again on the 26th, at least for the Premier League. Uh, Carabao Cup games are being played right now. You know, we're seeing Mbappe return to PSG. You know, we're seeing um, you know we're seeing countless players you know return to their clubs to just restart what they left off. And so I think pressing pause and having a discussion like this is just so incredibly important. I agree. Well, tomorrow we have Man City Liverpool. Uh, Premier Christ. League really? returns. Oh my god! Yeah, Premier League returns. Uh, Wait, on tomorrow? Stop. Yeah. Oh, oh, this is uh, a capital EFL one cup. cup. Yeah. EFL oh, cup. Okay. yeah. Um, but yeah, then Monday we have a full slate of Premier League games on Boxing Day. All the other leagues return as well. Um, you know that week and the in the coming days. Um, so. It's going to be a little bit weird to go back. Um, I feel like it's going to be a little bit weird to go back to watching. Like the first game is Arsenal uh, West Ham, I think, on Monday. Or sorry, Arsenal West Ham on Monday, December 26th. Um, it's going to be weird to go to like watching that coming off of watching this World Cup. Um, just because like it'll feel like going from watching like, I don't know, a super well-produced show to like, some like crappy Hallmark movie or something. Uh, but it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be nice to get back into the swing of things. Club soccer is obviously a lot of fun and it feels like we've just had a lot of time off. But I guess as the world soccer calendar continues to grow more and more year round, um, I guess we're going to have to get used to it. So, yeah. But on that note, Lads, it was a, a very fun and, and enjoyable World Cup when all is said and done, at least what we saw on the pitch. And uh, who knows what's going to happen in, uh, in 2027 or 2026, rather, uh, when, we, when we host the World Cup. Hopefully, we'll be able to attend many of these games uh, in person. I know that's what my, uh, my Acorns Fund is going to go towards. Um, but with all, with all that said... Uh, I suppose Ivan Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. And they come in. And yeah, and quickly before we get out of here, you guys spoke about this on the last podcast so eloquently, but I just wanted to offer my you know, two cents on the passing of Grant Wall, which I was incredibly uh, saddened by and struck by and moved by. And I thought you guys you know, talked about his legacy, especially in the, the field of American soccer and bringing prominence to the sport in North America, but yeah, just, I just wanted to say like what a tremendous loss that was and how saddened that made me. And the fact that like, that's another casualty coming out of this world cup as well. So yeah, I know rest in peace, Grant wall and yeah. And on to, on to, on to better things, I suppose. Yeah. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>